Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. The gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for bringing us together. We pray that uh, you will strengthen us now by your word to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. What happened on, uh, on Saturday, the 1st of February, 2020, just, just a few weeks ago, 13-year-old Anthony Abdullah and his 12 and 9-year-old sisters, Angelina and Sienna, were at their home in Oatlands near Parramatta, just actually where I grew up. They were playing with their cousin, 11-year-old Veronique Sarka. Uh, they decided, the kids decided, they wanted to walk down to the corner shop to buy an ice cream. They asked their dad, Danny Abdullah, and he said to them, yeah, sure, go for a little walk, stay together, you guys should be fine. While they walked along the footpath, 29-year-old Samuel Davidson was driving in his car. He was drunk, allegedly three times over the legal limit of alcohol consumption. Now Samuel lost control of the car, went up onto the footpath, and he hit and killed Anthony, Angelina, Sienna, and Veronique. Davidson has been charged with 20 criminal offences. They include four counts of manslaughter, dangerous driving occasioning death and grievous bodily harm, negligent driving and drink driving. How would you feel if you were their mum or dad? Three children and a niece, all killed by a drunk driver. How would you feel? Layla Abdullah, the mother of Sienna, Angelina and Anthony, visited the scene of the tragedy. She spoke about the accused driver and through her tears she said this. I think in my heart I forgive him, but I want the court to be, to be fair. I'm not going to hate him because that's not who we are. Thanks, Richard. Uh, that is a really profound response, don't you reckon? She wants the court to be fair. It, it would not be right for Davidson to just get off scot-free. There has to be justice. There has to be punishment. Let, let, let's not put too fine a point on it. There has to be vengeance. But then you don't want to be the sort of person who hates. The, the sort of person who's eaten up by bitterness. So where does she end up? I think, in my heart, I forgive him. Forgiveness seems like the best thing to do. But, but at the same time, the need for vengeance cries out. It doesn't seem right to forgive. Well, as we come into chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve have sinned against God and they've been thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Now, chapter 4 is divided into three parts. Interestingly, each part is introduced with a sex scene. That should keep you interested. So, uh, three sections. Let's have a look together. In the first section, Adam has sex with Eve, and they give birth to Cain. And then they have another son, Abel. Uh, Hevel, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. Uh, as the story progresses, Cain and Abel grow up. They make a religious offering to God, 
Uh, Abel, it seems, gives of his best fat portions from firstborn animals. It's an offering that shows a deep faith in God. But Cain, it seems, is more half-hearted about his offering. Uh, God accepts Cain, Abel, God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. We don't know exactly what it means that he shows favour in one or the other, but he accepts Abel's offering, not Cain's, and Cain gets very angry about it. Chapter 4 and verse 1, have a look with me. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. God has a fatherly chat with Cain about how he's feeling. He tells him, you've got a choice to make. You can give in to your sinful urge uh, to, to act on, on your anger, or you can fight against your sinful urge. You can, you can learn from what's happened and do better next time. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Contrary to God's advice, Cain decides to go with his sinful feelings and he kills his brother. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God questions Cain about what he's done. Cain lies about it and gives a smart aleck answer. But God says, Abel's blood is crying out. Crying out for what? crying out for justice, crying out for punishment, crying out for, for vengeance. And so God punishes Cain. He sends him away from his home and family. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The word he uses is literally shepherd. Remember Abel is a shepherd? Who's the shepherd here? Am I, am I the shepherd's shepherd? Um, uh, the, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain has a whinge about his punishment. He says that anyone who sees him will kill him, but God says, no, 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 that's not right. Uh, just as Abel's death demands vengeance, so too anyone who kills you will be subject to vengeance as well. Uh, in fact, God says vengeance seven times over. It's a way of saying full and complete vengeance. Just like with Abel, if anyone kills Cain, they will be subject to vengeance. That's what's right. That's what's good. That's what's just. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, 
My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Sad story, hey, terrible story. Uh, and, and it shows that uh, Adam and Eve's sin hasn't stopped with them. Uh, here is their son sinning as well. Uh, like Adam and Eve, Cain sins against God. He disobeys God's word. And like Adam and Eve, Cain um, gets questioned by God. And uh, like Adam and Eve, Cain ends up sent away to the east of Eden. There are lots of parallels between the two stories. But in some ways, of course, this story is even worse than the story of Adam and Eve. I mean, Eve had to be persuaded by the serpent to sin, whereas Cain sins even though God tries to dissuade him. Um, Adam and Eve ate fruit. Cain kills his brother. When God questions Adam and Eve, they told the truth. Cain lies to God. Adam and Eve accepted their punishment. Cain complains about God's judgment. Commentator Gordon Wenham puts it this way. He says, There is development. Sin is more firmly entrenched. And humanity is further alienated from God. That, that, that sin of Adam and Eve, it started something terrible. And as the story progresses, things are getting worse and worse and worse. But I've got to say, the thing, the thing that strikes me is the demand for vengeance, Abel's blood crying out for it, that it is not right that Cain should get away with it. Uh, even Cain can see that. He, he wants vengeance for anyone who harms him, and, and God agrees. God promises vengeance not just for Abel, but even for someone who kills Cain. Now, I'm not sure that most of us... I don't think we really get the need for vengeance. You might get a taste of it in movies or books. You know, the baddies kill the hero's wife and children and dog, and, uh, and then we, we cheer when they, when they give them their comeuppance. You know that feeling, don't you? That satisfaction of Clint Eastwood kills all the baddies or something like that. And, and, and we feel a bit of outrage when we hear stories like the one about those poor kids in Oatlands. But for most of us, I don't think we... We get it personally. Uh, we are, at least those of us who are younger, we are a group of people who are incredibly rare in this world and over history. Uh, we are a people who have never experienced war. We've never had proper enemies. We've never experienced having our friends or family killed or anything like that. We've never lived in genuine fear for our own lives. I remember... Uh, when I was in Florence a few years ago, I was talking to a Nigerian man. And he was telling me how a group of Muslims had come into his village and they had attacked his family. They'd raped all the women, they'd tortured and murdered the men, they'd stolen the young boys and conscripted them into their army. Uh, he and his wife had just managed to escape to Italy, but the rest of his family was killed. I said to him, I said, uh, I feel embarrassed about it now, but uh, I said to him, it must be hard for you to love your enemies. But he said, love them? You must be joking. He said, haven't you read the Psalms? 
Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who rebel against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Haven't you read the Bible? He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I have to admit, I came away from that conversation thinking, I have got no idea. I got no experience of the world to understand this properly. I got no real sense of personal demand for vengeance, of how blood cries out for it. Okay, that was section one. That was section one. Brings us to section two. Uh, again, it starts with a sex scene. Cain has sex with his wife. Uh, we don't know anything about her, of course. We don't know who she is. We don't know where she came from. We don't even know her name. The author doesn't say. Anyway, they have a son called Enoch. And then the author takes us on a lightning tour through six generations of Cain's wine. Some very interesting names here. Verse 17. Cain made love to his wife. and She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad was the father of Mehujael and Mehujael was the father of Methushael and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now this bloke, Lamech, he has two wives. Uh, one's called Pretty Face, Ada. The other's called Sweet Voice, Zillah. Uh, Lamech has three boys and a girl, and he also fancies himself a bit of a poet. Uh, Lamech composes a poem about vengeance. He reckons sevenfold vengeance isn't enough. If anyone hurts him, he wants 77-fold vengeance. Verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other Zillah. Adar gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes, relatives of our band. Um, Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. There's something good and right about vengeance. There's something just and appropriate about it. But vengeance is a dangerous thing. As we see here, it very quickly seems to multiply. Like some kind of virus, it very quickly spirals out of control. We've seen way too many examples of that in history, haven't we? And we see way too many examples of it in our world today. Uh, someone takes vengeance... Someone else takes vengeance for the vengeance and someone else takes vengeance for the vengeance for the vengeance and, and so on and so on until suddenly you've got a family at war or a gang war or a civil war or a world war. Vengeance is a dangerous thing. It's hard to stop. It has a way of multiplying. Okay, 
That brings us to the third and final section of the chapter. Again, it starts with a sex scene. Adam and Eve make love. They have another son. Eve is happy about it. And through this son's line, people start to worship God and pray to him. Verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. All right, can you see what's here then in this section, chapter 4? Uh, three sections. First section, Cain murders Abel. Uh, God judges him, but also protects him. If anyone kills Cain, they will face full vengeance. Uh, section 2, we follow Cain's line down to Lamech, who reckons he needs to be avenged 77 times. And then section 3, we get just a glimpse of, uh, I think, hope, don't we? Um, Adam and Eve have another son called Seth, a man whose family line calls on the name of the Lord. In the context of the story so far, the story of Genesis, what we're seeing is sin spreading and worsening. We're moving further and further away from Eden. We're seeing greater and greater alienation from God, greater and greater alienation of people from each other. But there is in the man Seth just just this glimmer of hope Hope that humanity aren't totally lost. But again, the thing that strikes me about this chapter is this cycle of vengeance, increasing vengeance. There's something right and good about vengeance. God himself demands it. And yet in the hands of sinful people, it soon spirals out of control. I reckon Layla Abdullah, that mum of those poor kids who were killed, I reckon she's got it right. Remember what she said? I think in my heart I forgive him, but I want the court to be fair. I'm, I'm not going to hate him because that's not who we are. I reckon she's nailed it. In this world, vengeance is a confusing thing. On the one hand, you want justice to be done. You, you want the court to be fair. You can't just ignore evil. If you do nothing, evil wins. If you do nothing, the oppressor wins. Injustice reigns. And if you do nothing, what are you saying about the victims? What are you saying about those people who were hurt? Those kids were precious. They were valuable. You can't just laugh off the fact that some drunk wiped them out. And you can't just ignore it. You can't just let the bloke off. That shows no respect to the victims. It shows that they have no value. There must be vengeance. That's the fair thing, the right thing. But on the other hand, you don't want to be the sort of person who is consumed by bitterness and the lust for vengeance. Look, it might look romantic in a Clint Eastwood movie or a John Wick movie or something like that, but but in real life there is nothing nice about vengeance. In real life it is a dangerous and scary and self-propagating and ultimately unsatisfying thing. Do you really think, in real life, let's leave Hollywood behind us for a moment. Do you really think in real life that Layla would feel better if she was allowed to kill the young man who killed her children? Seriously? Is that going to bring them back? Is that going to fix anything? And then how are Samuel's parents going to feel about it if she kills him? There's no satisfaction and there's no end to it. I agree with Layla Abdullah. I think we should forgive... I think in my heart we should do it, but how can we do it? 
let me tell you two things from the New Testament. Two things from the New Testament that I think can really, really help us here. Number one. Number one. God will have vengeance. That Nigerian guy I was talking to, he is absolutely right. God does say, vengeance is mine. Well, have a look on your outline there, uh, right-hand side from 2 Thessalonians. It says there, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Friends, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter if they look like they've got away with it. They will not get away with it. It's not going to happen. A day is coming when Jesus will return and God will judge this world and justice will be done, including full and right vengeance. And God's people will sing, Hallelujah! God will have vengeance. And what that means is this. It means we don't have to take vengeance ourselves. We don't have to right every wrong here on earth. Just because we haven't fixed it doesn't mean it won't be fixed. There in your outline from the book of Romans. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God says, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to fix everything. You don't have to put it all right. You can forgive and don't worry that it's not fair. Don't worry that they'll get away with it. I will fix it, says God. I will sort it out. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so we can forgive. Here's a second thing from the New Testament that can really help us. New Testament point number two. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, he, he bore the vengeance of God that our sin deserves. He, he took it in himself. He suffered it himself for us. Jesus experienced the vengeance of God on our behalf. And now through the blood of Jesus, through the death of Jesus on the cross, God offers to forgive you and to forgive me. Uh, to quote from Romans, he offers to justly justify us. His vengeance has been taken by Jesus. Justice has been served. And now God can rightly forgive those who trust Jesus. And so, as it says in the book of Hebrews, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out that vengeance has been paid. Jesus' blood cries out that forgiveness is now available. On your outline from the book of Hebrews, you have come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Through Jesus, God offers to forgive us, to save us from his just vengeance. And so now in the light of that, God calls on us to forgive. 
if we have been forgiven, we are set free to forgive. To forgive others like he has forgiven us. And your outline from Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Can you see these two New Testament ideas? God will fix it. God will have vengeance. You don't have to fix it yourself. And God has forgiven you. Can you see how they help us to forgive? It's not easy, is it? I mean, we're talking about it in Bible study through the week, and I, I think I uh, asked the question, is this realistic? Can you actually do this with people? And the answer is, well, it depends on how big the sin is. It's really hard to do. But this is big stuff. This is massive stuff. And, and so to finish, I want you to do some imagining with me. You ready? You ready to switch your imagination on? Imagine you're Layla Abdullah. A drunk driver has killed your children. You want justice. It's only fair. It's only right. But you don't want to be a person caught up in hatred and bitterness. You want to forgive. You think you should forgive. Well, at the end of time, if you are in Christ, here are the two scenarios if you do forgive. And, and I'm sure as you imagine these scenarios with me, you'll see just how right and good it is to forgive. So scenario number one, standing before God on the last day. Uh, that drunk driver, he doesn't trust Jesus. Well then, on that last day, he will get what's coming. He will face the just vengeance of God for what he's done. And you will say, Hallelujah. God, you did the right thing. No debt was left unpaid. And I did the right thing, leaving you to it. Or scenario number two. You're standing before God on the last day. The drunk driver put his trust in Jesus. On that last day, he, like you, is forgiven for that and for all of his sin. Uh, the vengeance he deserved, like the vengeance you deserve, will have been borne by Jesus on the cross. On that day, you and he... And God willing, your children, you will look at each other and you will smile and you will say, isn't Jesus magnificent? Isn't Jesus magnificent? And I am so glad I forgave you like he forgave me. Let's pray. gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your perfect justice. That a day of judgment is coming when you will fix everything and put every wrong right. 
We thank and praise you for your magnificent love and mercy, that you love your people and you long to forgive. And we thank and praise you for extraordinary wisdom, that then in the cross of Christ, your vengeance is paid and you can demonstrate forgiveness and love to your people justly. Thank you so much for Jesus. Do please help us. Knowing that you will fix everything and knowing ourselves to be forgiven, to be people who can genuinely forgive, help us not to be eaten up by bitterness. Help us be people who can love. And we pray that uh, you will use us then to bring peace and harmony to the situations in which we find ourselves, our families, our workplaces. Uh, grant that we might show forth the, the magnificence of Christ as we live lives of forgiveness. We pray it in Jesus' name.